You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. How's the practicing physician to interpret and use the results of a clinical trial or a medical study if it's not conducted in a rigorous way that ensures the results are above reproach and open to debate? Joining us to discuss Behind the Numbers, Clinical Trials and Controversy, is the Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, past President of the American College of Cardiology, and named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, Dr. Stephen E. Nissen. Steve, welcome to Inspired to Act. Thanks, Marty. I want to talk to you most about your interest in industry and their involvement in trials and so on, but I wanted to start so that the audience would know a little bit about you uh, and hear a little bit about how you decided to go into medicine. You're a person that's been very outspoken in the public eye, and did you ever think about doing something else other than going to medical school? Absolutely. You know, I took uh, eight years to get my bachelor's degree, which tells you something about the fact that I hadn't decided what I wanted to do. It was during the turbulent 60s, an era, you know, during the Vietnam War and at the end of the most active period of the civil rights movement. And I actually considered journalism as a career. I was very politically active. I considered a lot of options and ultimately, you know, gravitated toward medicine. And then once you were in medicine, was it cardiology right from the start? Or did you fall in love with cardiology immediately or did you come to it gradually? Well, I came time? to it gradually, but, you know, I made the decision to do a residency in internal medicine. And I went out to the University of California, Davis, uh, where I ran into a rather intense group of people who were, frankly, very dynamic. I think this is the story that many physicians will tell. They have a mentor. And in my case, it was Tony DeMaria, who I think many of your listeners know is a you know, very well-recognized cardiologist, editor of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology now. And I did a rotation with him in the coronary care unit, and that was all it took. I understood you know, that cardiology was really where my heart was going to take me, if you'll excuse the pun. And after that, there was no doubt. And you went with him to the University of Kentucky after that, didn't you? That's right. As I was finishing my residency, I was you know, planning on staying on at UC Davis, University of California Davis, as a fellow. And the program kind of fell apart. And Tony, at the time, took the job as chief of cardiology at the University of Kentucky. He said, look, why don't you come with me and be my first fellow at UK? And that sounded like a good idea to me. So I went off and you know, moved across the country to Kentucky. You uh, were one of the first people, at least many of us think of you as one of the first people to use intravascular ultrasound in human beings. Was that your idea? Was it his idea? How did this come about? Well, it was interesting. It was about 1985, so it seems like a long time ago now. And, you know, I was visited by a small company. doesn't exist anymore. And there were very fine engineers who said that they thought they could build a catheter with a very, very small ultrasound device on the tip. And at the time, I had been writing, I published a couple of articles in circulation on the limitations of angiography. And I realized that just looking at the lumen of the blood vessel didn't give us the whole story. And I immediately understood the potential impact of an ultrasound device that would show us the atheroma within the vessel wall. And so I, I hooked up with these guys and we began first in animals. And Five years later, you know, eventually got to human beings with the intravascular ultrasound. 
So it was the company had the technology, they uh, had already proved that it would work? Is that well, right before you started exactly using it? exactly proved that it worked. This was a gamble. Uh, you know, like many things, there's a lot of serendipity involved, but they, they had a very, very crude prototype device. It was certainly not the sort of device that, you know, was ready for human use. It wasn't even really ready for animal use for a while, but we got it there slowly. So it was... Really, I was there on the ground floor of a prototype device. What would you say, uh, looking back at it now, has been the major contribution or impact of uh, intravascular ultrasound on medicine? Well, it took a long time, but it was actually, I think, the atherosclerosis regression progression studies. You know, sometime in sort of the mid to late 1990s, most people in the field zigged, and I zagged. The zigs said, let's use this to guide coronary intervention. And I wasn't so sure that was the right application. We went in a different direction. What we did was we thought that by measuring the plaque in the coronary artery precisely, we could optimize drug therapy to retard the progression of coronary disease. And sure enough, uh, you know, by the, you know, 2003, we completed our first, you know, large-scale multi-center, multi-year trial, actually two of them, the reversal trial, which showed that more intensive statin therapy could slow disease progression. And the APOA1 Milano study, which was a very small study of an HDL infusion uh, drug that showed we could actually regress the disease. And after that, that whole regression, progression, you know, study approach, uh, it just took off. I'm ignorant of this. I'm embarrassed to say. Has this happened in carotid disease as well? As you know, I'm a neurologist. I'm interested in uh, carotid disease. It hasn't, mainly because there's been a reticence on the part of physicians to stick these catheters up into the carotid, and there just hasn't been a champion for it. I think it would work. There is one other aspect of it, and that is that with the carotid, you can make pretty good pictures with an external ultrasound device. So the incentive to stick a catheter in the carotid to measure plaque isn't nearly as great as it is for the coronary where you really can't see the coronaries with external ultrasound. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me today is Dr. Stephen Nissen. We're discussing clinical trials and controversy. So you got involved in clinical research fairly early on. There's been a lot of talk in our field about uh, trying to get young people into clinical trials. The NIH says that there aren't enough people getting involved. You got involved, and then you began to notice that some of these clinical trials weren't being done properly. I mean, when did it sort of strike you that there was a problem out there? Actually, it was the year 2000. You know, I remember it quite well. I was asked to serve on the FDA cardiorenal advisory panel in early 2001. I served on a panel, the first FDA panel I'd ever served on, and I was a guest member uh, serving from the cardiorenal panel as a guest serving on the arthritis panel. And we were asked to review efficacy data for two drugs, one of which was Vioxx. And when I read the briefing materials, I saw immediately that there was a large excess of myocardial infarctions in the patients that had received Vioxx. So I went back and I pulled the New England Journal of Medicine manuscript that had reported on the VIGOR trial. And lo and behold, the cardiovascular outcome data was not reported, or at least wasn't reported in a way that you could understand. And it was a wake-up call. And I realized that here was the most prestigious journal in the world 
publishing a manuscript where data had been withheld and was simply not available to the clinician. And so my colleagues and I just took the data from the FDA advisory panel meeting and published it in JAMA. And that is what launched the whole Vioxx controversy. Well, tell our guests, I think a lot of people who are not on the inside here have a hard time understanding what actually happens here. Who actually withholds the data? Well, in this case, there was a smoking gun. The disk that was submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine originally had a cardiovascular events table. And someone at Merck deleted that table before the manuscript was submitted. And so you saw the long arm of the sponsoring pharmaceutical company very much involved in the architecture of that manuscript, how it was written and what data was presented. And in this case, the academic authors were, you know, were not necessarily in control of the process. Is that a crime to do that? It's not a crime. In fact, it is how probably 99% of all clinical trials are done. company decides what to study, designs the protocol, then appoints an academic steering committee, and the steering committee provides some sort of academic oversight. But frankly, the key decisions are made by the company, and ultimately the manuscript is not infrequently, you know, very much involves the company, and to greater or lesser extents, the academic authors will weigh in. Now, in at least in our place, I'm sure in your place and a lot of others, there's a big effort now to try to be sure that the companies give up their right to squelch data like that. Absolutely, uh, but you know, is that working or is that just, working? That it's working to some extent, but there still are problems. You know, a, about a, a trial, a pivotal trial of rosiglitazone, where it does not appear that the academic authors are really in control of the process, and you know, this continues to be a problem that plagues our profession. You know, the pharmaceutical industry can make a physician very, very famous. And so the incentives to, you know, go along with this are very high. And uh, we've got to really step up to the plate and do our job in providing academic oversight. Not always happening. Let me ask you something fairly frank about this, uh, because I know you're a fairly frank person. Has anybody ever threatened you? Have they actually threatened you that they'll get you in some way for doing this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How, How do they do that? I've received anonymous letters and other sorts of things. You know, look, it comes with the territory. And, you know, you get to a certain age and you kind of say, well, you know, I'm not going to easily be intimidated. And, and you choose not to do that. By the way, what age is that? I'm hoping to reach that age. When does that happen to you? I'm 61. And, you know, frankly, at some point you look into your soul and you decide, you know, what do you really stand for? And are you willing to stand up and be counted? And, uh, you know, more and more physicians are doing that. More and more institutions are saying, look, we don't want our physicians doing promotional speaking. Now, I want to make something very, very clear. We need the pharmaceutical industry. We must work with the pharmaceutical industry. I've even said that there's a moral imperative for us to work with industry to develop new devices, new products, new pharmaceuticals. But how we work with industry has to be in the patient's interest. We have to protect the integrity of the process. If we lose the integrity of our profession, we have lost everything. And I'm afraid we have lost a lot over the last few decades. I know you've been very, very careful about not taking any kind of uh, money or anything from companies. Do you think that's the best way to sort of take care of the conflict of interest problem, to just take nothing and not be involved? It works for me. Now, what I do is that I basically say I'm happy to work with industry, and I do every day, many, many companies. 
but any honorarius, any fees of any kind, they have to pay to a charity, directly to a charity, so that I receive neither income nor a tax deduction. And I think if you talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. Now, you know, look, it's, there's a lot of money involved, as I think, you know, everybody understands, but, you know, you sleep better at night when you do that, and people will trust what you have to say when you publish something if they know that you're not conflicted. The audience doesn't know this, but I'm from Cleveland uh, also, and I think one charity that you could give the money to would be the Cleveland Indians. I think they could uh, they could use it. What do you think, Steve? I think the Cleveland Indians could use all the help. In fact, I've been thinking about actually going out and taking some batting practice with them because I can hit as well as some of their players. I think they could, uh, they could the definitely Cavaliers, use it. the Cavaliers, my friend, are going to go all the way this year. Let's hope so. I'd like to thank my guest, the chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Stephen Nesson. Dr. Nesson, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.